how a Christian life could look. We've moved on beyond the Beatitudes to a series of six um, kind of statements and or challenges where Jesus is talking to the disciples and um, he's starting off his phrases saying, um, you may have heard it said, and he's quoting um, parts, Jesus is quoting parts of the Mosaic Law. And um, he's really looking to the Pharisees and just trying to challenge some of their understanding and some of their common understanding or interpretations of the Mosaic Law. And the disciples that are gathered in front of him have been around a culture um, with the scribes and the Pharisees and certain rabbis, and they've all been debating some quite um, important and contentious issues. And, uh, and so Jesus is seeking to bring some clarification. He's not coming to um, challenge the law that was given through Moses, but actually coming to demonstrate how he is uh, fulfilling it and uh, how he can bring a right understanding to the law. And so um, we're going to be looking this week at the second. Last week we looked at um, lust and adultery and how that works. Um, today we're going to be looking at the subject of divorce. I was that joyful when I heard it as well. And uh, every single person who I've said that's what I'm going to be preaching on just met it with like a wince, like, ooh. And uh, yeah, and that is what we're going to be looking at. And um, I think it's really important that we understand that. It's, uh, as a church that is maturing, it's, it's good that we face some difficult issues and questions that make us wince a bit are actually important because it forces us to really look at the reality of the gospel and how it impacts us in all aspects of our lives. Um, and also, as Christians, it's, it's a subject that is prevalent around us in the culture. And uh, we need to know where we stand on that and what our view is of it and, and what would Jesus say on this subject. And um, fortunately, Jesus was asked the question of what about divorce and what does that mean? And so um, this morning, this afternoon, we're going to look at this topic in light of the Sermon of the Mount. Um, I guess before I go into any context or scriptures, I want to just acknowledge that there's likely to be people here that are personally affected or have been affected by divorce. They may have parents, they may themselves have been in the situation of divorce. Um, and so I want to approach this situation sensitively. Um, I've tried to do as much reading as I can around this subject and to gather as many viewpoints. And for some, some um, writings and some commenters and some pastors have almost bypassed this subject and they've owned up to that in their Sermon on the Mount commentaries saying that it, it's such a difficult area to focus on that they'd rather almost just acknowledge it but wave it as it goes by and uh, that's not something we want to do We've, we really want to face this head on and really try to understand what what is Jesus saying here and what does it mean to us as believers and also if people here are not a believer and then they're new here today what what does God have to say on the subject of divorce and marriage for that matter and why is it so important to him so quite a challenge for this afternoon for us to talk about this um, the way I'm going to approach it is to give a little bit of a context as to why this subject is being spoken about on the sermon and then look at what is it that Jesus is saying and therefore, as a, spirit, a spirit-filled believer, how should we approach this subject and, and how might we give guidance and support and counsel to those that might find themselves impacted by divorce. Anyone know what this figure up here relates to? It is the number of um, divorces that were granted in the UK, the last figures that were available from the Office of National Statistics. 126,496, and that was in 2009. Um, The good news is that this is the lowest 
figure since 1977, 33 years. And uh, it, it is on the decline slightly, but I'm sure you'd agree that is quite a shocking number. Um, and if you then think of the ramifications of this statistic, that there's the family that are impacted, the children, the lives that are torn apart, the families that are destroyed, the friends, the networks, then this number seems even more um, stark, I think. The age range in which um, divorce is found most common now is actually in the 20s. And whilst the statistic overall is reducing, it's becoming more and more common now in the UK for divorce to be on, on the increase. And in the late 20s, that's the most kind of prevalent age group for people to find this. So people in the congregation here, if we took an average of age, that's probably around that, around that age. So it may be that you are likely to find yourselves with friends um, who are facing that situation. I know Natty and I, we've been married seven years now, but we already have friends that are divorced and have split up, and we've seen the devastation that um, kind of follows. So it's, it is a um, sensitive subject, and I want to, to acknowledge that. Um, one of the commentaries I was reading was of the late John Stott. He said this of divorce. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfilment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. And so Jesus, when he's asked this question, what about divorce, and we'll look at this in a second, is, is on the one hand trying to bring some clarity to how we should treat divorce and how believers should view divorce. But also he's got the father heart of God looking to these people who are separated from him and there's this kind of this pull and push and pull um, from the Father. And we're going to seek to look at those two sides of it. So let's just read the passage and then I'm going to pray. We're going to look at today Matthew 5. It's only two verses, but you'll be surprised how much can come up out of two, two verses. So um, verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray, shall we, first of all. <laughs> Lord, I thank, you that, um, I thank you for the word. I thank you that you've given this to us for, for our guidance to live, Lord. I thank you that through your word you just communicate this wonderful gospel of um, restoration and reconciliation and your heart to um, restore a right relationship with your people, Lord. I thank you that we have this. We don't have to guess how to live our lives, Lord, but we've been given this word that just teaches us all aspects of our lives. Lord, I just um, thank you for your wisdom. I ask that um, this afternoon that you give us ears to hear, that you would um, really just prepare our hearts to receive a message that is potentially sensitive, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would really um, be upon us as we listen and upon me as I speak, and that you would help uh, bring about this message with clarity and conviction and, um, and just of your love for us, Lord. Amen. Okay. I believe, as I've been reading around this subject, that actually the, the kind of the... The clarity is not in what Jesus says. I mean, the, the, the lack of clarity is not in what Jesus says. It's more so in people being able to, I guess, receive the message that he is giving. 
And so um, I think the challenge for us today is being able to look at the word at face value and saying that's what, that's what Jesus is saying and, and therefore trying to, to think what does that mean for me in my life. The background for this passage is that Jesus is talking to the disciples, but at the time there was lots of discussions around um, teaching from the Mosaic Law, and the Pharisees had come to misinterpret quite a lot of the commandments from from Moses. And when we look at this um, commandment to do with marriage and adultery, the Pharisees had essentially taken it and had tried to create various clauses for themselves. And they tried to create exceptions whereby divorce was permissible and tried to create lots of um, circumstances where they felt that it might be permissible to enter or to, to enter into marriage and then to break it um, with divorce. And it got to the point at this time where a lot of the teaching um, from the Pharisees had been that divorce was a right and that, it, uh, and that based on the instruction that was given from Moses that it was something that was to be done um, if difficulties arose within a marriage. I guess one thing that is very clear uh, in this passage and as we go through is that whilst um, we're studying something that was given in the Mosaic law, it was never a commandment to do. It was more a concession. And Jesus goes on later in Matthew 19 to say that it was a concession from God because of the hardness of the people's hearts. It was not and never will be God's intention for people divorce. And he hates it, absolutely hates it because of what it represents and because of how much marriage represents as well. And so we won't be able to understand really the, the importance of divorce without first looking at marriage, and that's where we're going to um, move on to shortly. The passage here, um, right at the top in verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, is um, a quote from Deuteronomy 24, um, which is where... Moses was speaking and giving some understanding about the law. So I just want to first of all go to um, Deuteronomy for us to see why is it that the Pharisees may have got this understanding and why was this teaching kind of misinterpreted a bit? Where where was it coming from? Um, And it was first given here. So I'm just going to read this through with you um, from Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. And then for us to really look at what was the purpose of this when when it was introduced by Moses, why was it brought about? So I'll read it through with you first of all. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so there's quite a lot in there. I want to just really boil this down to a few principles that we can take from Deuteronomy, which is where Jesus is kind of um, answering this challenge and and where they're citing. First of all, we see that the um, term that's given for for the case of divorce in this sense is indecency. Um, 
It does not mean, in this instance, adultery, which is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 5. Because in the time when this was written, if adultery was committed, it was death, then they'd be stoned to death. And so there was no clause or there was no concession for, um, for adultery in the time of Moses. So the marriage would be ended anyway, so <laughs> it wasn't going to be a question. Here we see them discussing more around um, when, and it's, it's talking from the standpoint of a man towards a woman. If a woman has, if a man has found some level of indecency, um, and, and the translation there of the word is some kind of um, uncleanliness. In fact, some of the translations use the words uncleanly, which is perhaps a bit more um, clear. However, at the time, it was a very chaotic situation in which we see from some historians that um, when Moses gave this law, people were entering into marriage and breaking it very, very flippantly. And they were entering in and out of marriage and then marrying someone else and then saying, well, I've had enough of that person, I'm going to marry someone else. And it was taken very, very casually. And so the purpose of this um, law for Moses was to try and bring a level of order to what was a very chaotic scene surrounding marriage. And in this passage and the wider context of Deuteronomy, that's what Moses is trying to address, There's the chaos that was going on at the time. And so this passage here is written with the understanding that, first of all, adultery wouldn't be allowed at all. But then if there is some level of indecency or uncleanliness, it may be a permission to divorce. There's more clarity that Jesus brings. So the, the points I want to raise from Deuteronomy, first of all, that divorce was limited to certain causes. At the time, it was almost limitless in terms of the reasons people cited for divorce. And here, Moses is trying to say, if divorce is necessary, there are certain reasons why you might want to do it. All, all, the, all other excuses were prohibited. The emphasis in this passage is more on the if these things happen rather than should they or would they. It's not necessarily a commandment that if, uh, for whatever reason, uncleanliness or indecency enters into a marriage, that it is a, a prerequisite to, to divorce. It's just saying if this happens, this may be permissible. So one, it, there's only exceptional circumstances. That's something we can draw from this. Secondly, that it must be enforced um, by this bill of divorcement. The intention at the time was really to protect the woman because the men were kind of running wild a little bit and really treating the women badly. And so if a woman had been kind of cast out, then no one would touch her. And if she'd been divorced from a man, she could risk being stoned herself, um, even if it was for a ridiculous reason. I read in one commentary that you know men at the time were divorcing their wives just because they weren't keeping the house clean or they burnt their food. Really ridiculous reasons. And some of the women were being cast out and risking death. And so part of what Moses was wanting to do here as well was to bring some protection and order regarding the women. And thirdly, he was trying to show that you can't just walk in and out of marriage at will. It's a binding agreement, and it's something that God takes very, very seriously. So when we look at the Pharisees who had really lifted this passage, and we're using it as an excuse to say, look, it says here that we can just issue a certificate of divorce. And they'd taken this term, indecency or uncleanliness, to really be a very wide-reaching term. And when Jesus is speaking to the disciples on the mount, this 
scenario was not too dissimilar from when Moses brought the original instruction in Deuteronomy in that marriage was being taken very, very lightly and all sorts of reasons were being cited for divorce. And Jesus was trying to bring some clarity as to why this came about in the first place. It wasn't because God likes divorce at all. It was because of the chaos and the disarray that was going on and wanted to bring some level of order. So I want to take us um, to Matthew to see what what is it that Jesus is saying and what is it that um, we can take from this. The, The verse in Matthew 5 seems to be a shorter version of this passage here in Matthew 19. And so it would be helpful for us, I think, to compare these two passages together because here in Matthew 19, Jesus is expanding a little bit on his explanation and it's helpful for us to see Um, a slightly broader context of his answer when he's responding to the disciples. So let's just read through Matthew 19. You'll see it's very, very similar to um, Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount here. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You might be familiar with that last line, Damien Lisa. I love here how Jesus is actually not responding to the question, He responds to the question with another question, which is often what Jesus does. Um, And he takes here, he takes us to look not at, let's try and understand the case for divorce, but actually let's first of all understand how God views marriage. And then once we've understood that, we'll return back to this subject. And I want to follow the same principles that Jesus does in trying to answer this question for you, because I think that's probably the best model that we have to go by. And so, um, first, understand why marriage. This quote here is from um, Genesis 2, where Jesus is quoting, and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Jesus is wanting to emphasize at this point is the importance of marriage. And why is it that if God hates divorce so much, why, why is that? And it's because of actually divorces representing the separation of something that God never intended to be separated. The text here that says they are no longer two but one flesh literally means that when a man and a woman are joined together, the word one flesh and they they come together actually means they're glued, almost like like an adhesive. They're, They're joined together so that no gap is between them. That's the kind of the full translation of that meaning. So closely stuck together that nothing would be between them at all. Um, I wanted to give a little demonstration of, of uh, marriage, and uh, I turned to the arts community, uh, gospel community, for their support in prop making. Um, Tom informed me that Chloe have, has done a master's in sticking and cutting. That was his words. And, um, yeah. Was that right, Tom? Yeah, so they, they prepared some props for me to uh, illustrate the, the importance of marriage. So here we have a pink piece of paper <laughs> to represent the woman. And uh, this is blue, apparently, a blue piece to represent the man. 
Um, and so we're told in Genesis 2 that God created them from the dust, so probably not much more than paper, actually. <laughs> God created man and woman from the dust, breathed life into them. And then he kind of looked at the man and said, it's not good for him to be alone, and created woman from him, took a rib from Adam and created the woman. And then they became one flesh. Let me give turn to my second prop. See what Chloe's done here? Yeah. So, (laughs) this is is how close God intended the coming together of the man and woman to be. You can't separate them. You can't see the difference. There is a man and there is still a woman. It's not some kind of homogenized thing. However, you can't see a gap between them, all right? It's just one. That, That is marriage. The man and the woman glued together so that nothing might come between them. And when a man and a woman uh, enter into the covenant of marriage, they're agreeing to stay like this. They're agreeing to stay together as one and to not let anything come between them. And if we want a clear picture of how God views divorce, we must understand that firstly, divorce was never part of the picture. Because actually he intended for us to marry and remain together. I must just say at this point, I'm not um, negating anyone here who is unmarried or single. um, Because we can clearly see Paul talks about the gift of singleness as well. And that that is also something that people are blessed with. So um, for now, I'm talking in the context of a married couple because that's where this question arises. However, marriage is um, not for every person. So this is the picture that we're left with. I'm going to come back to my um, demonstration shortly. Marriage is a covenant between two people. And if we've had a lot of marriages recently, and you've probably all got to hear the vows of agreement between a man and a woman quite a lot. And uh, I was very fortunate enough to have married Dave and Lisa. And uh, so I got to study the vows. And they're an incredible thing. It's really a promise. A man is making a promise to a woman, and the woman is making a promise to a man to give themselves to each other and to not let anything come between them. And that is what a covenant is. It's an, it's, a, it's an agreement, it's a promise. So the man and the woman covenant with each other that they will stay together. So God takes this incredibly seriously. He's a covenant God. God makes lots of promises to us as well. We hear lots when people are praying out. So I'll never leave you nor forsake you in Joshua 1, God says. It's a promise. And we take it that God means his promises and that he, he's not going to go back on them. We know and we trust that God is a God that keeps his promises. And that's how marriage, how God's created marriage to be, a covenant that stays. That was the intention. We also know that God takes marriage very seriously because it's not about the solemn promise that's made, but also because we're told in the Bible that the marriage stands for and is an echo of something a lot bigger than just the marriage of the two people. We know that the marriage speaks about the relationship between Jesus and the church. And a marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of something much bigger. As Christians, we get to represent one of the most um, amazing promises that Jesus has made towards the the church. And the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is a reflection of that. Paul speaks a lot about in Ephesians of how a marriage is representative of Jesus and the church. And I just wanted to read this with you because it's a wonderful picture for us to see how, how important this 
union is and, and what it speaks of when we think of our relationship with Jesus as well. So here's um, Paul talking in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So direct parallels going on here that Paul's making. His body and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2 again. This mystery is profound. I've added my own bold here, by the way. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In a marriage, it's a bit like a role play between Jesus and the church where the husband gets to play, the church, uh, to play Jesus and the wife gets to play the church. And Paul is really saying in terms of instruction for marriage here that the husband should treat the wife in the same way that Jesus and the, and the church do. And this, it's this relationship and it's this play of Jesus and the church and the husband and the wife. And so when we see two people come together in marriage, it becomes much bigger than just a relationship where two people fall in love and spend hours planning a wedding and making spreadsheets and granting favours and place settings. It actually becomes about a prophetic act that's speaking of the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And it, it says something to the world around about the love that God has. So when we consider this aspect of divorce... We must bear in mind all that it represents. It's not just about two lives separating. It suddenly becomes about this prophetic act. It becomes about this covenant that is supposed to be binding that separates. If I go back to my man and my wife (laughs) here, divorce is literally saying that I'm trying to separate these two things. And that's a bit like what happens. It's messy. It tears apart lives. It leaves people in pieces. And what was supposed to be one is suddenly two, and they're just left often in quite a desperate situation. And this is what Jesus is trying to speak into, to bring about some order. And at the time where it was just being taken so lightly, he's saying, look, this is something really serious. It's not just about your marriage, it's about something much bigger. But actually, the agreement that you've made is something representative of of the relationship with God and the church. It's a covenant, it's something that you enter into seriously, and it's never intended to break. So why was it that we see, if God views marriage so seriously, and it represents so much, why is it that we're even talking about divorce Well, if we go back to Matthew 19, the second half answers this question. In fact, they they asked Jesus exactly the same thing. Why then 
did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If, Jesus was quoting from Genesis 2, if it's about this union, it's about a covenant, it's about two becoming one and something that's supposed to be inseparable, why then did Moses in Deuteronomy 24 speak of um, concessions whereby a man might divorce his, woman, his wife? Why then? And he said to them, because your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So the answer is, Jesus says, it, wasn't, it was never meant to be like this way. From the beginning, it was not meant to be so. That was never part of the plan. However, because of the hardness of heart, because of people turning away from God, that this concession, Moses allowed it. He did not command it, as some of the Pharisees were trying to claim. He allowed it because of the situation, because of the hardness of their hearts. God was just trying to reduce the chaos in what was, tried to create some order in what was a, a large amount of chaos. So the question that most people have asked when I'm talking about this is, so what, what, is, what does this mean then in terms of grounds for divorce? Given that there's that 126,000 divorces in the UK every year, as a Christian, how do we view this? What, what are the grounds for divorce and what does Jesus say? So definitely we need to address this. We need to have a view on this with the backdrop that it's because of the seriousness and severity of the covenant of marriage first. So my personal conviction in reading is that Jesus is actually quite clear. In Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, he states exactly the same thing. Here we see Jesus using this word, um, except for sexual morality. So he's saying the case for divorce is this sexual immorality. Um, if we go back to the original text in Matthew 5, it's cited again, except on the ground of sexual immorality. There's no other clauses, there's no other reasons, there's no other cases or scenarios like the Pharisees were trying to claim. They had the most um, ridiculous list of reasons why. In fact, when I was reading some of the reasons why some of the Pharisees were trying to claim um, a divorce, it, it sounded really, really ridiculous. Um, some of them were for... You know, I read one um, Jewish historian. He said he was reading some papers, and um, divorce had been granted because uh, someone had burnt a meal. Or uh, another example was that someone, a man, just got tired of the, the looks of his wife and considered her plain. And um, and and these reasons, I was just thinking, wow, it's it's kind of crazy the reasons that were cited. However, then I came across, I, I looked a little bit into um, divorce law and. And in the USA and in quite a few Northern Europe countries, there's actually a grounds for divorce called no-fault no fault divorce. Um, we don't have it in the UK, but uh, lawyers are petitioning for it at the moment. And it essentially means that you can apply for divorce as long as both parties are consenting. You can apply um, without any, citing any particular reason at all. You can pretty much say, we've grown apart, we don't like each other we want a divorce and that's in 46 states in the USA and in quite a few countries and it's potentially going to come into the UK so something as seemingly 
tame as incompatibility, for instance, is one of the um, reasons that's cited in the US law. So just a couple saying we're not, we're not compatible anymore, which doesn't sound too dissimilar from some of the reasons I was reading from the historians at the time that Jesus was speaking and also at the time when um, Moses was giving the law in Deuteronomy. So what then can we say about Jesus' view on divorce? Well, it seems to me that there is one reason why. Um, the terminology here is the piece that most um, commentators war against a little bit, and it's this use of the word here, sexual immorality. The definition, or the, the word actually comes from the Greek porneia, which the word prostitute and pornography come from, and it's essentially um, including incest, idolatry, fornication. Most people tend to agree that this exception or this concession would be a better word that Jesus is citing, comes down to serious sexual um, sin. Whether, the, whether it's with someone that is married or not, it's the person in the marriage that commits some serious sexual sin and it points very much to sexual intercourse. So if someone has sex outside of marriage, then the case here is saying, in, in that, with those circumstances, Jesus is saying, then the, the innocent party is free to divorce. Because if we look back at this bond, what happens when someone in a marriage goes and sleeps with somebody is that they break the bond of marriage and enter into a bond with somebody else. And so it, it is no more. The bond that was intended to be permanent and inseparable is broken. And so on these grounds, and on these grounds only, Jesus is saying, then that person, the innocent party, is free to divorce and remarry because the bond has been broken. Now, when you consider divorce, there's lots and lots of uh, cases and variations. And uh, I want to have the opportunity for Q&A at the end as well because I'm sure that people might have questions in their minds. But one thing I wanted to be clear on is that my conviction and my belief is that Jesus cites only this reason whereby the person would have a right standing before God, that they would, if, if there's a case of sexual immorality, that they would, the, the innocent party would be free to divorce. John Stott says this of this case, the modern tendency of Western countries to, f to frame legislation for divorce on the basis rather of irretrievable breakdown or death of a marriage than of a matrimonial offence may make for better and just law. However, it cannot be said to be compatible with the teaching of Jesus. And it really comes back to, as Jesus was doing the passage, comes back to this one flesh covenant of marriage. And adultery is essentially breaking that covenant. Where there was supposed to be nothing in between, adultery breaks and puts something between the two. However, it's not a command. So imagine a scenario where a couple, happily married, someone... One of the two goes off and, for whatever reason, sleeps with someone, is bitterly sorry and comes back again. It's not a command that you divorce. It's just saying, if this does happen, this is the scenario whereby you'd be in right standing before God. So what about the other cases? Because this is narrow, and I believe that's what the passage preaches. So what then? 
I just want to read from um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he asks this very question. If we're saying that this concession is the one reason that Jesus is citing to say, in this context, the individual, the innocent party, is then free and in the right standing before God to divorce, what then? What, what about all the other many circumstances? So this is what um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say on the subject. Having nothing to say about the others, asked someone. All I would say about them is this, and I can say it carefully and advisedly and almost in fear, lest I give even a semblance of a suggestion that I'm saying anything that may encourage anyone to sin. But on the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I'm compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No, if you truly repent and realise the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. But hear the words of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more. So I believe this is one of these things that we have to hold kind of two things and in equal weight and, and find a place of peace with it. One, we can say that Jesus is very, very serious about the covenant of marriage and about what it represents, and he hates divorce. And he's saying here that except for the reason of immorality, that it wouldn't be in right standing with God. And then we also know that we have a God that, that is about reconciliation, that is about restoration, and that is about forgiveness of sins. Dave, um, where's Dave? Mance, he might be outside with his baby. He came up and uh, quoted from Hosea, and I think this helps bring some understanding to the heart of God towards this whole scenario. In the passage of Hosea, for those of you that know it, Hosea is one of the um, minor prophets, and um, he is a man who's a man of God, and God asks him to marry a lady of the time who was promiscuous, who was of Ill, Ill repute, um, and he was a prostitute and well known for it. And God asked him to marry her, which would have been, given that this was a man of God who really held the law in high regard, this would have been something that would just have been absolutely shocking and almost unbelievable for him to, to do. But he does. And God says very clearly that this was a prophetic act and it's reflective of God's being the husband and Israel that was just in this, at this time entirely promiscuous. Uh, God, in chapter 2 of Hosea, re- refers to Israel as like a, a whoring nation. They'd, they were uh, rife in idolatry, um, worshipping Baal. They had statues everywhere. They'd forgotten their God. And yet God's heart was just breaking for them. And um, and we're told that the nation of Israel is just is just is in disregard towards God, and um, really turning their back on Him, and and being in this place of, a, of an adulterous nature. And yet we also read in Hosea, which is where Dave was reading from, that God's heart was still totally for them. He was incredibly angry and expressing that towards the nation of Israel for their sin and for turning away from him. And yet, at the same time, his heart was just wanting to reach out for them and wanting to stretch out a hand of mercy. And um, 
where Dave was reading from was of God expressing that he will restore and regardless of what they've done, he will restore them back to himself. God had um, made a promise to the people of Israel, which is again representative of this covenant. He'd made a promise to them that he would give them this land and take them, in, take them for himself and yet they had turned against him. The people had broken the covenant and turned adulterous on God, but he was keeping his side of the deal. I want to um, just read part of uh, Hosea that just represents some of God's heart. So God's in the situation not too dissimilar from the one that we're looking at in Matthew, whereby God's looking at Israel and they've been involved in all sorts of sexual sin, they've been immoral, they've been worshipping idols, they've essentially committed adultery towards God in this relationship with God and the church. And he looks at them, and this is what he says. This is from um, Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and although they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them all up. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? They were cities that were um, close to Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recalls within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. And so we see this situation here where God is likening Israel to a wife that has turned away and been adulterous and sinned, and yet we clearly see here that God has got a heart that is wanting to reconcile Israel back to himself. He's able to, in his mercy, see past all that they had done and reach out to them. And this is the heart of God, that he might restore right relationship back with himself. We look in, if we look back to Genesis and Genesis 2, where we see the covenant coming together, when, as soon as sin entered in, then the relationship between man and woman started to fall apart, but also the relationship between God and man started to fall apart. And divorce is actually just a consequence of sin. Sin is the issue when it entered in that man's heart started to turn away from God and started to do his own thing. And from that point onwards, God has been reaching out to man to offer him a way back, to reconcile God back. And so when we read this passage in Matthew 5 around the case for divorce, I think we also equally have to hold it next to this God who in, in his own situation of you know, looking at the church as his bride and seeing them commit all of this adulterous acts were still able to say I forgive you and I'm welcoming you back and I'm going to restore you back to myself and 
I still want this relationship. And so these are the two things that we have to, to balance, I think, when we think about this passage. We now are under a new covenant when Jesus came. I just want to read um, what Jeremiah has to say about Jesus and his role in this covenant and, and in this aspect of God and the church. It's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So that's the same thing that we were just reading about. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So it's the people that broke the covenant. God was always the husband and always for them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Thank God that he is merciful and that he is prepared to forgive a multitude of sin. Thank God that he provided a way through the cross that we were able to come back into right relationship with God. Thank God that Jesus died taking on all sin so that that separation between us and God could end and that through Jesus we can be in right relationship with him. Thank God that he is merciful enough to reach out and to send his only son. Thank God that he didn't stop and get frustrated and and give in. This passage um, speaks to us of the heart of God, of the seriousness of his promise towards us. This is a covenant that God is making to his church. And it goes without saying that if he takes this that seriously, then the marriage of covenant, the, the covenant of marriage is also very, very serious. However, we also know that there is no sin that is unforgivable, and we know that God's grace is sufficient for all. And so if you are someone that has been affected by divorce and you're sitting here hearing this thinking, well, you've just said that there's only one exception where you'd be in a right standing with God for divorce, and that's not me, then I also want to as equally clearly say to you that God's mercy and grace is sufficient and is not limited to any cases or scenarios. It is for all, and Jesus came and died for all. And the opportunity is there for you to have right relationship with him, regardless of what has gone on in your life, providing that you come to the cross and accept Jesus for who he is. If you're an unbeliever and listening to this message, what I would say to you is not to view this as a fix for getting a marriage right, but rather that you need to get Jesus in your right in your life first. He was talking to a group of um, believers here, and we've just had the backdrop of the Beatitudes, where we're told what a spirit-filled life might look like and, and how radically challenging that is. If you don't know Jesus, then your first port of call is to get to know him first and then see the wonderful 
restoring work that he's able to do in people's lives. But not to look at this as something that you could, you have to do or don't do. Jesus is first. Get that right and you'll start to see it impacting every aspect of your life. I want to um, give the opportunity for people to ask questions because I know this is a subject that people may have queries over or cases. Um, there are other places in the Bible where divorce is spoken about, um, which may help with specific scenarios, but I believe what was important is to preach what Jesus is saying here and to be clear on that, and also for you to have an understanding of why is it that we take this situation so seriously and why might God hate divorce so much. Um, so I am happy to answer questions if people do have them on divorce. Yes, Tom. Um, I would, yeah, sorry, yes. So the question was, um, if a couple came and there wasn't a case of sexual sin, but there was real sin going on in the marriage and real difficulties, violence abuse, something like that, yeah, okay. Um, I I would follow the principle that Jesus did in responding to the question, why did Moses create this concession? First of all, before talking about divorce and what are the cases and clauses to say let's look at what marriage is first of all and what God intended by it and what it represents and look at whether there's a right understanding of that and secondly look at God's heart for reconciliation first and I believe that that would be the order in which to do it before even discussing any aspects of that. Do you want to add something to it Steph? Just to um, add something, we'd planned to do this Q&A together anyway, so it's cool. Having been on the receiving end of um, kind of that scenario as a, as a youngster, I've reflected on it a lot. And I think w- what I would say is, is that I would, I would, we would be quick in that situation to encourage separation if, if, if the perpetrator of the violence wasn't willing to stop that. Um, and then within that context of safety work out what the way forward is so we wouldn't just try and work out the way forward and keep the thing as it is if there was violence or any kind of abuse going on but make sure that you worked it out in the context of safety first someone else okay
So to summarise the question, <laughs> so Tara was referring to Exodus 21, which cited um, a number of reasons for separation um, and whether Jesus is referring in Matthew 19 to that particular clause. Okay. So it was almost as if this were to be an example of a right way of approaching it, but the inference is that there'd be more instances whereby it might be accepted. Is that right? Is that about, is that about right? <laughs> Do you want to respond? That's what I said. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess what you're saying isn't incoherent in the sense that it's not like a crazy thing you're saying but when when i look at jesus's statements i think that it, even if he was responding to that particular thing in that conversation his statement about what marriage is what god has joined put together let no man put asunder i would i would see as a very universal statement um so one that would in that situation speak into that in, but in the same way, that same statement, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, would speak into the Exodus 21 situation as well. I w- I w- he's, speak, he's making a general comment about the, about the profundity of marriage, what it is before God. And so because of, because of that, I think that um, it would be, I think there were probably many things throughout the Old Testament that Jesus didn't refer to that we don't think are still ongoing i think the whole social law and the ceremonial law that wasn't specific reference wasn't made to much of it we we really don't in terms of you know goring oxes and all kinds of stuff you know it's just a it's a totally different scene so i think on that front that's probably not how we do apply the old covenant i think what we do is we look at the moral law which um which which we say god's the moral character of god hasn't changed um some summed up in the ten commandments so we would be not saying we're under the law, but that is still God's standard, if you like, of moral righteousness. 
But in terms of those other smaller details in the Old Testament, I don't think we would say we keep doing those. So in that sense, I think that I am more persuaded to see it as a general comment on marriage per se. Not that I'm into husbands neglecting wives <laughs> or anything of the sort. And, you know, we'd look to be dealing with and discipling people firmly on that stuff. But that would be my response to that particular question. Torsten? We've got four hands up. We've got jo- Joy, you're still up. We've got Joy, Ollie, Mactuno, and Mary. We'll leave it there. We're going to have four more questions and we're done, okay? Because time is really running away with us, but obviously it's, it's important. Joy, do you want to go? Joy, sorry. Is it okay if we stick to questions? Just the reason I, the reason I, the reason I ask is that if we develop a, a setting of corporate, I guess, I don't know who's going to say what. I don't want to develop a thing where then we have someone says something and then we say, actually, we don't believe that. And it could get a little bit tricky. Um, if So, 
the question <laughs> you, it wasn't an easy one so the question was really around remarriage so the passage states that if there is grounds of um, sexual immorality and divorce is granted then what happens then um, so if it's if it's if it's on the can I say the the grounds that are cited here so what would be the right grounds before God whereby in a marriage a partner commits adultery that the innocent party is then allowed to divorce before God because that bond is broken and the innocent party then free to remarry the passage goes on to say here that if the person who has committed the sin then goes on to marry someone else they're not only committed adultery themselves but what it's saying is that if they go marry another person they're entering into a further act of defilement of the covenant of God of marriage and so it's kind of progressing the the adulterous nature of it so the innocent party free right before God say to 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 have the divorce and free to remarry the person who's committed the sin assuming that they're not repentant of it they're not only themselves are adulterers but then if they were enter into another relationship it's furthering the adulterous nature of it is that clear who, where's the last question? Yes. Mary. Yes. Okay, so the question is, if someone is already in a second marriage, um, what should they do then if they come, acron- come across this teaching? And then what happens? What's the inference? Not divorce, because you don't fix breaking covenants by breaking another covenant. So even if the covenant was founded in an unideal situation, God still has regard for that covenant. Um, yeah. Back to another no. Yeah, so the question is, um, would God ever be pro or for divorce if the situation were to be that some someone's partner had committed adultery and they were unrepentant and the individual left the kind of the innocent party? Is it is it good? Would it be right for them to then divorce? Um, I guess that's what this passage is actually talking about, where there's there's a party that have committed adultery and the other not. There then, I would. No is the answer to would God be pro divorce? No. A recommendation, is that what you're saying? Okay. So the question is around could it be a concession as opposed to a recommendation? Uh, uh, Jesus um, 
in Matthew 19 says it, Moses allowed it. I think allow is probably an important word to say that, inferring that it definitely isn't the ideal. And he even says that, you know, that was not how it was supposed to be in the beginning. Um, So I think concession is still almost the best word, really, because it's with the understanding that that is not God's best. And if that were to be the situation, there's an allowance of it because of the hardness of heart, and that's the reason that Jesus gives but we can't escape the fact that that's not what God intended, nor is it something that he likes. Just to say on that as well, I totally agree. We mustn't move from revelation to speculation. So we've, it's been revealed that there are situations under which God allows it. Um, but God has said clearly in Malachi, I hate divorce. So that's revealed because it breaks his heart. And even if people are in danger or there's been repetitive adultery and God totally allows it, it still breaks his heart because he loves covenant and he loves seeing marriages work. And I think it's important to keep that, that at the front of our minds um, whilst recognising there are grounds where God in his, in his wisdom will permit these things. So we uh, haven't got much time at all, um, <laughs> but we've got two tables for bread and wine, which means there doesn't have to be a really long queue, okay, which is great. The bread and wine tables are at the, at the back this week. Um, so you can also pray with each other and not be too near the loud music. So we're going to do it like this from now on. Okay, and um, sorry, Simon, have you finished? I've just taken over, haven't I? I didn't even, sorry. Um, but um, we haven't got loads of time. Um, but let's use the time that we have to just love the Lord. We'll probably be able to get maybe another song going. <laughs> get the bread and the wine. The cups are marked with wine or juice according to your own conscience. Let's do that. Let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another. If you've been particularly pierced today because of the nature of the subject, you're either a, a victim in some way of the divorce situation, you're a divorcee, you just feel you need a little bit of TLC, a bit of encouragement, uh, or even just some, so you need to just ask a few more, more personal questions, please find us. Let's do that. We want you to be built up through this um, because that's what God's about. Amen? Amen. So as you take the wine, let's remember that we are the luckiest people on the earth because we are in an eternal covenant with someone who hates broken covenants, right? We are in an eternal covenant with someone who hates broken covenants. So as we draw near to the bread and the wine, just uh, go forth with that incredible confidence, incredible knowledge, and we're going to sing, um, O God of love, uh, I come to you again knowing that I find mercy. How good it is to be loved by you. How good it is. And how good it is to be loved by you. How good it is. Sing how good. How good it is to be loved by you. How good it is. To be loved by you, how good it is. Oh God. God of love, I come to you again, knowing I'll find mercy. 
Last 